Welcome to the Liberty Exchange. My name is Jonathan Fortier. Our guest today is Todd Zwicky, who is the George Mason Foundation Professor at the Scalia School of Law at GMU, Research Fellow, and former Executive Director at the Law and Economic Center. In 2021, he served as the Chair of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau Task Force on Federal Consumer Financial Law. A fuller description of Professor Zwicky's bio is available in our show notes. I'd also like to highlight that Todd has been on the front lines of pushing back against the authoritarian government measures during the COVID years and successfully mounted a legal challenge to his employer's vaccine mandate. Today, Todd and I cast our gaze back over the past year to discuss some pro-liberty developments and then look ahead to consider possible threats to liberty in 2024. It's worth noting here that Todd and I speculate widely about challenges to individual liberty and some of the ideas advanced don't fall within traditional libertarian models that distinguish between public and private violations of freedom. Most libertarians oppose censoring or regulating private firms like Twitter and Amazon, and see the practices of those companies as completely different in kind to the threats posed by governments. This is the position of mainline libertarians and the position of Cato policy scholars. Todd's speculations are intended to challenge liberty-minded people to re-examine some of these traditional models in an effort to refine our understanding of the relationship between the private and the public spheres and what impacts changes in those two domains, either separately or when acting in concert, might have for our freedom. Todd, thanks so much for coming on the Liberty Exchange podcast. Always great to see you, Jonathan. As I mentioned, for this month's podcast, we're running a Janus theme, which, as you know, and most in our audience would know, is uh, the Roman god after which January is named. And uh, Janus was uh, that Roman god that has two faces, one that looks backwards over the period we've just lived through and one that looks forward into the future. And he was the god of transitions and the god of doorways and thresholds and so forth. And so we thought what could be fun for uh, this January podcast would be to cast our gaze back over 2023 and try to identify some pro-liberty moments that we can take inspiration from and possibly look forward to 2024 and identify some, some things that are hopeful or some things that we think are potential threats to liberty. In the, uh, in, in the quick glance backwards, you know, we have we have quite a number of negative things, um, of course, um, the war on Ukraine, the attack on Israel, the ensuing conflict in the Middle East, uh, and so forth. But amidst the wreckage, do you identify any anything that's positive that we can uh, we can see as as positive developments for a freer society? Well, funny enough, these there's sort of two categories, a very small category, which I think were unexpected positive developments for liberty. And the other larger category are uh, win, wins by defense, uh, which are fending off uh, threats to, to liberty and in some sense preserving the, the status quo. I think on the first category, an unexpected and pleasant surprise for liberty I think has to be the uh, the election of Meli in Argentina. I mean, still the mind reels uh, that this actually happened, uh, that somebody like him uh, was able to uh, be elected in a country like that with as frank uh, as he was doing. And the early reports suggest he is actually following through with that. So 
um, you know, this, I mean, is this a sea change? Uh, who knows? I mean, we'll, we'll see, you know, he's got a lot of powerful forces to fight there in Argentina, but he is obviously on offense. He is obviously doing things. He won with strong approval, uh, from the, uh, from the people. And I don't know how anybody could not be excited to watch that experiment that's uh, going on there which is one of the most remarkable things that I recall for liberty in my time. I think a, uh, a lot larger category, and I'll just tick through a few of them, and then we can, we can double back. Um, yeah, great. Which is re- really the category of rolling back bad things in some sense or fending off bad things. The first category that um, I think is worth talking about in some detail are a series of developments at the U.S. Supreme Court where it appears that the court is uh, getting serious about reigning in the administrative state and uh, the way in which the administrative state has evolved uh, over time and executive overreach. I think a second category of things relates to, uh, to COVID and the rolling back of COVID restrictions and uh, fending off further COVID restrictions, but also the fact that a lot of the architects of that stuff are running away from their record and developments with respect to Twitter and social media, I think, fit in that. A third category, I think, relates to basically DEI and ESG as that issue has taken on greater awareness among people. Um, I think the sort of stealth role on that is uh, rolling back. And then the final category, I think, uh, deals with uh, schools um, and what's going on uh, with with kids and parental activism uh, and the like. And so maybe we can take a few minutes and we can unpack each of those a little bit and um, uh, and let you know why I think those were positive developments. Yeah, that's a great list, Todd. Well, let's begin with Malay or Malier, or however his name is pronounced. Um, <laughs> The the thing I find encouraging about Millet is that he is not bringing in his libertarian program or his pro-freedom program through subterfuge. I mean, he's out front and center and is <laughs> advertising his ideas, isn't he? I mean, as you say, very quite aggressively and quite proactively. Uh, and so it seems to me that the ideas resonate with a huge number of people in uh, in Argentina. And it, it kind of raises the question whether or not, you know, the ideas resonate with people around the world, if only there were courageous politicians that were willing to take a stand and articulate them. I think that's a great point, uh, which is, you know, one of the things I learned when I worked in the government is uh, um, most people get it backwards. Uh, they think about the politics and then you de- design the policy around the politics. What he has done and what I think is a uh, uh, a way of, of doing this that's surprisingly not tried very often is get the poli- get the policy right first and then um, and then the politics will follow right which is develop a set of ideas that you sincerely believe that um, resonates uh, with people um, and just explain this is what I believe and this is why I believe it I think too often even those of us who believe in freedom um, and liberty end up trimming our sails unnecessarily. Either we overstate our case or understate our case because we are trying to some way persuade other people, like what we think that they're thinking. We're making the arguments that we think are persuasive arguments. Whereas I think what he is doing, and is often the case, is he's saying, this is what I believe and this is why I believe it. And he gives good reasons for it. And importantly, the other thing he really is, he's not afraid to essentially say, and these are the morally correct policies, right? Too often, I think those of us who believe in liberty, um, again, trim our sails because we end up talking about 
pragmatic uh, type things or trade-offs and unintended consequences and that sort of thing. Um, and that's not the language politics. The language politics is, uh, is moralistic. Um, it's this is what I believe and this is why I believe it. And if we have the moral high ground that he obviously believes he has the moral high ground, why not say I have the moral high ground? All right. You don't have to brag about it. You don't have to wave your fist in the air, although he does a lot of that too. But basically say this is outrageous and, um, you know, and, and, it, and I'm upset by this. And a lot of people, a lot of other people will be also, right, rather than feigned outrage or, or ignoring outrageous things uh, when, they are, uh, when they are outrageous. Yeah. I see this as being very similar to some of the more widespread protests we saw during during the period of COVID. You know, people were marching by the millions in, in the streets, uh, much of it or most of it not covered by the mainstream media, of course. And they were carrying banners, not with signs that said, you know, more security or more lockdown or protect me from dangerous things. They were carrying signs that that read freedom. Um, you know, and, right. uh, and it's the signs that the German farmers now, um, are, <laughs> are brandishing as well. Um, and it's the signs that were prevalent during the Canadian trucker protest. And, and it's the same with Argentina, um, and, and Malay's election. You see people actually making bold claims in favor of, of individual freedom. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Uh, um, and I was thinking about the, the truckers as well, right? The anti-lockdown protesters in the United States who are small business people and the like. And, and we sometimes forget that, um, you know, classical liberalism was born um, as a uh, kind of a populist movement, right? The anti-corn law league and uh, things like that uh, was to, uh, uh, to fight off the, the power of the aristocracy and, and things like that. And so, and, and somewhere along the way, we kind of lost that. Uh, I think we lost some of that rhetoric, that rhetoric uh, and that belief in freedom and the value of a free, uh, the moral value of a free society. And so maybe, the, as you're saying, this this resonates with people, um, the Leave Us Alone coalition and the and the like. And, you know, I think um, the, like how like the growing awareness of the threats of central bank digital currency, for example, in a lot of quarters, people more and more are waking up to uh, the fact that freedom is a populist idea. Individual liberty is a populist idea. And I think we're seeing this in the, the sorts of forces that you're describing. Yeah, yeah. Maybe now's a good time to to think about some of these other things you've raised, Todd. You framed it as, in a sense, defensive wins for liberty. I think that's a good way of thinking about it, the rolling back of the administrative state as a way of reclaiming lost ground. Are there any that you'd like to focus on uh, first? I mean, you mentioned several different things, and uh, we could take any one of them that yeah, uh, comes so, to mind. Yeah, yeah so I think um the the first one that I think is uh is most important and obvious from twenty twenty three uh was the striking down of biden's uh student loan bailout uh the idea that the president unilaterally essentially through executive order could just write off half a you know half a billion dollars uh in in student loan debt after both he and the Speaker of the House said he clearly didn't have the authority to, uh, to, to do that, I think it's really significant. And the effort by the Supreme Court through this consistent application of the major questions doctrine, which goes back, there's several cases over the past couple of years. Uh, that case, 
the CDC eviction moratorium case, uh, where if you recall, the Supreme Court temporarily, they, they basically upheld it because there was only like a month left in the, the thing and said, don't do it again. Biden said, essentially, they told me don't do it again, but I'm doing it anyway. <laughs> and the Supreme Court said, we told you don't do it again, right? Here's your, uh, here's your message, right? The student loan ballot was about 10 times as large as the CDC uh, eviction uh, uh, moratorium. The uh, things they did in EPA versus uh, West Virginia, uh, I think, was another one, right? Uh, the effort to regulate, um, for, by the EPA to regulate uh, emissions uh, in that way. These are things where the Supreme Court is staking out an effort to say, we're going to put limits around this. And now this term, we have the next case uh, in the series, which is the Loperbright case, which is uh, being argued, I believe, today as we are conducting this interview, depending on when this is being posted, which will revisit the so-called Chevron Doctrine, under which there's deferences given to administrative agencies in interpreting basically their powers and reasonable reading of the law. And what we've seen over the past 50 years or so, since uh, 40 years since Chevron has been on the books, that um, I think the administrative state has taken the power they have and expanded it beyond any reasonable basis. Uh, what we've learned is we've always known government expands uh, uh, to fit the space allotted. What we've also seen is the administrative state expands to see the space to fit the space allotted and beyond. And in particular, what we've seen is Congress doesn't want to do its job and they're perfectly happy to allow the administrative state, uh, for various reasons, to gobble up what should be the power of the uh, the democratic branches. And the Supreme Court is saying, nope, we're not playing. We're not playing that game, right? There's uh, first, there's limits on under major question. Second, we're going to limit potentially. That's what the case is about today. Uh, we're going to limit the uh, um, the ability of administrative agencies to be able to define their own powers and um, um, everything that goes uh, goes along with that. Yeah. Nature abhors a vacuum, and apparently so does the administrative state. So, <laughs> right. Yeah. And so that's sort of the formal law. The, the other place where we see really interesting things happen, and these are the ones that are, mo I think, even more important. People haven't focused on these as administrative law cases, but they really are because they're not so much administrative law as administrative state. The, uh, the, uh, what was the Louisiana versus Biden case? I think it may be called Missouri, uh, Murphy versus uh, Missouri now. This is the uh, case that came out of the Fifth Circuit involving the government coercion of the social media platforms to censor people during uh, COVID. There's another case bubbling up that's very similar to this down in Texas, in this case involves the CFPB. It's in the district court case. But what happened there was the CFPB used its powers of supervision over banks to essentially impose new anti-discrimination duties beyond what is uh, required by the law. So why are these cases important? Because what they are is really the first steps, serious steps, of courts to look at this question of what uh, uh, Wayne Cruz at the Competitive Enterprise Institute calls regulatory dark matter or soft power, things like um, supervision, guidance, blog posts, um, speeches, policy statements. You may recall during the Obama administration, the Dear Colleague letter uh, that was used to revise Title IX. And why is this important? Because 
traditionally those have held not to those have just held to be advisory things by government. They've not been held to be legal requirements. And so as a result, parties have not been allowed to challenge those in court because basically the idea is until the government actually coerces you, you don't have any sort of claim. But what we're seeing in these cases now is, and I hope, um, or at least in the, the, the Fifth Circuit case and in the Texas case, um, an understanding that in the world of the regulatory state, um, the government doesn't have to formally coerce you in order to coerce you. Uh, is John Allison, the former president of Cato, as I've heard him refer to as uh, regulation by raised eyebrow, uh, right? Uh, which yeah. is, do you really need to do that, right? Don't you think you'd be a better corporate citizen if you would censor that speech? Or, you know, another one that's uh, before the Supreme Court is the NRA versus Vulo case. Uh, um, or I think it's got a, a new name. Uh, but it's a case where the New York Board of Financial Regulation told banks that it would be a reputation risk for them to provide bank accounts to the, uh, to the NRA. And so this is Again, one of the first cases that is formally looking at challenging this uh, sort of um, soft power by the government that amounts to coercion. And uh, I believe it was Don Willett in the Fifth Circuit case and the social media case said it best. Isn't, didn't what the government, the White House here essentially do say a nice little social media company there would be a shame if something happened to it, all right? Like the, like the mafia, which is... Uh, we have the power, they have the power antitrust law, consumer protection law. Maybe you believe that it's just a coincidence that about five investigations have been opened against Elon Musk since he bought Twitter. I'm going to say I don't think consider it to be a coincidence. <laughs> right, right. Well, it seems like a lot of this DEI and ESG uh, stuff would fall under this sort of soft power, dark matter sort of regulatory state, wouldn't you say, that it isn't necessarily mandated by government fiat, but it seems like um, it's going to have a heavy influence on banking and investment in general. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and I think the other aspect of that, and I think one of the reasons why the SEC is not finalized, it's um, uh, it's it's climate disclosure rules, uh, to the best of my knowledge, is because they know it exceeds their power. They know they're going to be sued if they do it. And they're trying to figure because it's not material to the financial risk of uh, investing. Um, and they're trying to figure out a way, uh, a way through that because they're basically going to get sued the day after they, after they issue it. But what, you know, what that puts a finger on is, I think, another question that I think is an open question how this plays out, which is this coordination uh, between the regulatory state and, um, and activist groups, um, for want of a better word, woke activist groups, right? Why does the um, SEC and these other entities want to force these disclosures when they say, oh, all they are is disclosures, right? Well, we know why, because then it provides um, essentially kind of the rope by which uh, these companies can hang themselves, which it basically provides direct fodder to, uh, to activist groups to be able to boycott them, to be able to uh, shame them, attack them, uh, and, the, and the like. And so the, the, the real underlying point here, Jonathan, is when the, when the administrative state has its hands and fingers in everything, they literally have their fingers in everything. They can get you any way they want to, right? What was Adam Smith's phrase was something like the measure of liberty is how many laws you can break simply by sitting still and doing nothing, something like right. that, right? Yeah. That's the way it is today, right? Uh, which is the administrative state can 
not only impose punishments on you, but they can withhold um, benefits, right? When yes. I was in the government, one of the things that bothered me about the administrative state at the Federal Trade Commission was how American citizens, powerful American citizens, people who are doing very productive things, would come before the FTC and essentially have to be supplicants to beg for permission to do things that are productive, right? Think about the permit power, for example, and the way governments can, you know, hold things up or move things along, depending on how well you uh, play ball with them. Right. Uh, and in that world, the power is so broad and so arbitrary and so unpredictable that it sort of hangs like a sort of Damocles over uh, private individuals and private businesses trying to do anything productive. Yeah, yeah. You alluded to the Twitter files earlier, and uh, you know Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger have been doing great work in exposing the collusion between government and social media, especially Twitter. This might be a little bit of an aside from identifying wins for liberty in 2023, but I think it's worthwhile. And that is maybe you'd like to just address the libertarian contention or the contention held by many libertarians that it really is not a um, it should not be a concern for libertarians who are concerned about government overreach if social media companies want to censor absent the presence of government involvement. Right. Now we know right. that the government has been involved, and so the, <laughs> the, issue is, it, the issue is moot. But let's assume that the government had no role to play in, in Twitter's shadow banning and censorship and manipulation of messaging on their platform. What do you say to, to libertarians that say this is really not should not be a concern of ours? You know, you're you Todd, you're free to start your own Twitter anytime you want um, and compete. What are your uh, what are your musings on that front? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, in my in my view, we've had a model, a mental model that's worked very, very well for hundreds of years in uh, in libertarianism, which is we have this binary categorization between public and private. Um, and the only threats to liberty are public, uh, private, uh, 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 that the, the private power isn't really something that we think meaningfully about, right? And not only do we think that private power is not a threat to liberty, we generally think it is pro-liberty, right? The ability to exclude uh, and, the, uh, and, and the like, right? Um, and I think that pla that binaries work pretty well for a very long time. Um, I think it's time for us to revisit uh, that distinction. Partly it's because, um, as I said, I think the, go the government, the, the it's number one, government power is not binary anymore. It's not on off as we've been talking about. It is, uh, um, it is more of a continuum uh, from one end to the, uh, to the other. Uh, but I think the other thing that we're seeing is um, I think private power is a real thing. I think what we are seeing is the ability of uh, private entities to effectively restrict liberty, to tell the truth. I mean, I'll, I'll tell my experience. I sued my employer. I was able to sue because I'm a state employee. Uh, I sued my employer, George Mason, over its vaccine mandate because I already had COVID. Fortunately, they granted me an exemption and settled very quickly. Uh, uh, and I got my exemption. And then God bless Glenn Youngkin when he got elected governor of uh, Virginia. And one of his first day orders was to permanently lift all vaccine mandates on Virginia employees. So I did not have to get fired from my job or move to another state uh, uh, because I had no idea whether they're going to renew my exemption. But the experience I had since then has been very sobering, uh, Jonathan, which is I started talking a lot about Twitter. I'm talking a lot about COVID. And what I experienced was 
videos removed from YouTube uh, with no explanation other than violated terms of service. I've been shadow banned on Facebook quite clearly um, for the things that I that I'd said. Um, doctors who I followed on Twitter um, uh, for medical advice, uh, uh, true information and medical advice about you know my health were removed. Uh, we saw um, clear election tampering by uh, by the uh, platforms in suppressing the Hunter Biden laptop story, that sort of thing. One company, one company, Amazon.com, effectively has power to decide whether or not a book will be published uh, in the United States today. Because if Amazon won't cover it because it's got the wrong political valence, then um, then no major publisher is going to carry it, right? That's a lot of power. Um, that, it's hard for me to see a difference in kind between Amazon, but between some, frankly, woke employees at Amazon deciding whether a book gets published um, or, uh, or um, the government decides, right? And I'll say, call me crazy, I don't feel freer because some, um, you know, woke employee uh, uh, or algorithm at YouTube called me a spreader of disinformation and, and censored my uh, videos rather than, uh, than the government, right? I think it's absurd to try to tell me somehow I'm free because this, what is effectively a monopoly, in my view, monopoly uh, 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 platform of distribution that can affect public discussion, that can affect elections uh, and the like. Now, what do I think is the solution? I think that's the question we should be asking ourselves. Do I think it's a problem? Heck yeah, I think it's a problem. Do I think that is in any meaningful way a restriction on liberty? Heck yeah, I think that's a restriction on liberty. And one of the things I've thought a lot about is there's a lot of discussion, for example, in the libertarian movement historically about, say, the Civil Rights Act. Um, if, however we define liberty, am I willing to say that the Civil Rights Act, right, uh, that forcing private businesses, uh, uh, you know, hotels and restaurants to accept black um, customers, sure, that was a violation of the, uh, the, of the property rights of, the, uh, of those guys. Could I say uh, overall that expanded liberty in America? I think that's a pretty reasonable conclusion. Um, I'm not saying everything's like that. I'm not necessarily saying that YouTube and Twitter are like that. But I think that's a pretty good example of a situation in which it's a, a reasonable libertarian classical liberal position could be that violating, limiting the property rights of certain private businesses for a public benefit that expands liberty, whether it's integration, uh, whether it's free speech, whether it's democratic elections that are not uh, uh, influenced by, uh, uh, by, you know, tilted by uh, private platforms and the like. I think this is a serious discussion that we need to be having. And I think that starts with it starts with that. And the final thing I'll say is when it comes to these social media platforms, oh, and I'll give one other example, right, which is COVID vaccine mandates um, uh, by employers. Um, we've got this sort of idea that, well, you know, your employer can decide whether or not uh, set the terms and conditions of employment, make you get a vaccine. Well, does that mean that libertarians can't say that you know, we, we favor laws that prohibit sexual harassment on their job, <laughs> right? Well, here in this company, you you know, we sexually harass our employees. I assume you're okay <laughs> with that, right? Oh, I know you've been working here for 25 years and you've dedicated your whole career to this, but we decided we're going to change the policy. And from now on, you can only work here if you're okay with sexual harassment, right? 
I think that's a, I think that's a, a juvenile position, uh, to tell the truth. Uh, and to say I could have just gotten another job somewhere else um, after spending my entire career working at this institution as a professor, I think is 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 a silly it's a it's a silly position. I heard from hundreds of people around the country uh, who said the uh, the same thing, uh, where there really is a coercion there. It is undoubtedly a coercion. Uh, it's not just a, a a market where people can move around uh, uh, willy nilly. And I think uh, um, libertarians become cartoonish uh, when we draw this this binary uh, in that uh, in that way that doesn't take into account the realities of markets as they actually are and realities of markets within the context of uh, of the political and regulatory and legal environment that we have today. We are in the world of the second best. In the world of the first best, maybe all this stuff is free access and entry. In the world of the second best, we have we the, the markets are not distorted. Employers can have power, right? Uh, um, social media platforms can have power and that uh, and that sort of thing. And and I think it's, it's libertarians um, and all this stuff is here to stay, right? Uh, I think we need to start thinking about how we determine a truly viable strategy for liberty in the world as we have it today. So you're saying that there are complex circumstances in real life that are not easily addressed by simplistic <laughs> mental models? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I'm, I'm saying this is not uh, this is not 18th century uh, 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 America, right? Uh, that where they can take your where they can surveil you on, online, right? Uh, another example is banking, right? Uh, banking's a great example, which is banking right. is one of the most heavily regulated industries uh, in the economy. Entry and access is highly, highly regulated. Uh, they regulate in a very opaque and non-rule of law sort of way. And what we're seeing now is that banks, um, and we saw this with Canadian truckers most, uh, most uh, effectively, right? Yeah. Which is banks can shut off people's access to, uh, to, to bank accounts, right? Does it really matter whether or not that's because the government somehow coerced them to do it or pressured them to do it? Or because the banks just decided, I don't like this. So every bank decide I don't like this social media posting you have or this political position you have. So therefore, you can't get a bank account. Or if it's the case, we used to always talk about, uh, um, you know, the Soviet Union had a great uh, freedom of speech in their constitution. But every libertarian knew the the response, which is freedom of speech, freedom of press doesn't do a lot of good if the government owns all the printing presses and the uh, in the ink. Right nowadays. Right. What good is it to be able to, say, publish a book on a scurrilous topic that people don't like if, you know, pick your favorite, communism, Nazism, white supremacy, uh, you know, Islam, Islamic views. If all the banks are going to say, um, we're afraid of the public blowback we'll get from doing this, we're not going to give you a bank account. You can't have a business if you can't have a bank account, right? Right. You can't publish these books. You can't say these things if you can't sell them because you can't have a uh, have a bank account. And so I think, again, is that really that different from the Soviet Union controlling all the printing presses and in, in, in ink? That looks to me when that's happening, that that is something we should take seriously as libertarians as an infringement on liberty, for want of a better, better word. Yeah. 
Yeah. What do you think accounts for the attempts to check the administrative state and to roll back some of these uh, infringements? Is it that there's just a general growing awareness within the population that there has been tremendous overreach, administrative and political overreach? Or are there changes in the Supreme Court that are allowing for challenges that had you know, not been possible in the past? Well, there, those are, but I think both of those factors are working together. Uh, the first is the changes in the Supreme Court. Uh, which is that what has happened over time um, is that the administrative state has become more and more lawless. They have basically decided to stop following the rule of law in any effective uh, uh, sort of way. Um, Rulemaking is very difficult. It's open to challenge. And so it's slow and there's due process protections there. If you bring an enforcement action against somebody, they can actually take it to court. Then there's due process protections there. What do you do if there's a blog post? Right. I'll, gi- I'll give you an example of one a case involving uh, COVID vaccine mandates. I think it may have involved the uh, de- Defense Department. Some military members who'd already had COVID were filing um, uh, under religious liberties um, and saying basically they had a religious obje- objection to the, to the uh, vaccine. And as part of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, the government has to use the least intrusive and most narrowly focused means of achieving its goal. They said natural immunity is better than vaccines. Right. So your goal is achieved. So your goal is achieved by recognizing our our natural immunity. The Defense Department's response was, well, we're just following the best guidance of the CDC. So then the response was, well, we'll sue the CDC over the reasonableness of their guidance. What did the CDC say? Well, it's just guidance. <laughs> you can't sue us because it's just guidance. So we're not telling them to do anything, do anything at all. Right. And so what we see is the regulatory state is uh, um, its lawlessness is endogenous, uh, which is that they figured out that um, following the rule of law doesn't allow them to accomplish their goals. Using browbeating, backroom pressure, this regulation by raised eyebrows sorts of things gets a pretty high level of compliance without anybody being able to challenge it or, uh, or the like. And if you remember when the COVID vaccine mandate was struck down in the lower courts, the initial response of the Biden administration was, well, we expect that employers will still do this, quote, on their own, uh, right, even though they don't, they don't have to anymore. So, so I think the Supreme Court has wised up to this. The Supreme Court has understood that it's not enough to follow these old formal limits between this is a government action that is, uh, is challenged and this is just the government providing some good advice uh, type things. They, they're realizing that, you know, that that, that, that has to be uh, reined in. But I think the second thing is a growing awareness on the public, um, the growing awareness yeah. of the of, of what this experience is like, the consistent use of emergency powers. Right. Going back to 9-11, the financial crisis and now COVID, where, you know, uh, Hayek said, what what Hayek said that, uh, you know, that liberty is lost through emergencies, basically. Uh, And what we see is when the government steps in to respond to these emergencies, they say, oh, it's just temporary. We'll restore the rule of law when it's done. The emergencies last a lot longer uh, than any reasonable person thinks they should. The government never rolls it back. Uh, after the fact, they usually just sort of codify it. And every time the government acts, there are special interests who benefit from that and then become entrenched and want to, uh, to, 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 to keep it going, right? The end result of the financial crisis, everybody knows, was to codify bailouts. The one thing that was supposed to happen in the financial crisis was we were going to get rid of bailouts forever. 
That's what Obama said. Nobody believed it at the time. Yeah. And as we saw this past year with Silicon Valley Bank and, uh, um, you know, and Signature Bank and those sorts of things, as soon as things got shaky, what did the government do? Just started bailing out banks again. And nobody was surprised. Right. right. Most people weren't even outraged because they knew that it was bogus uh, to say that they weren't going to bail these guys out uh, in, in the first place. And so I think people are becoming savvier. People are becoming more aware about, you know, your 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 point, Jonathan, which is you can't trust these guys. Right. You can't you can't trust right. them to judge their own powers uh, in these situations because they'll take what they can get and they won't give it back. Um, even if they want to, there will be, in my view, there will be special interests who will usually try to preserve the status quo after it all all happens. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Bob Higgs articulates this very well in Crisis in Leviathan, doesn't he? The the ratchet up of government over time, and usually uh, in the midst of crises that justify temporary that's right. of government, and, which is never repealed. And so he, you have this ratcheting effect. Th that's right. And Bob famously focuses on sort of the budgets and expenditures and that sort of thing. But we're just talking about now, but just sort of power, period, right? Uh, right? The power of the government. And a lot of this is through the regulatory state more than it is sort of our standard sort of rent-seeking, here's some government goodies uh, type thing. It's entrenching winners and losers through uh, through the regulatory state and the you know power balances it, uh, it creates. Yeah. And perhaps one could argue even more insidiously is the normalization of a, a sort of oppressive government intrusion and perhaps a normalization of compliance as well. I mean, you also get, you know, you awaken people to the necessity of resisting and fighting back for the freedom, but you also get a, the sense that compliance with ever heightened levels of control is the way to lead your life, right? So we saw Correct. this, of course, after 9-11 with the accretion of ridiculous regulations in airports, right? Where, you know, at one point it was, you know, <laughs> you couldn't bring your Swiss army knife on the plane anymore. And then you couldn't bring your water bottle on the plane. And now you have to take your shoes off. And now you have to take your belt off. And now you have to literally stand in a scanner with your hands over your head as though you've been arrested. And um, we are, in a sense, conditioned to give up civil liberties and economic liberties and a whole array of other aspects of our lives in order to just function. That's a that's a wonderful point, uh, Jonathan. And we see this when we look back at the old classical liberal thinkers, that, that liberty is not usually lost all at once. It's lost uh, bit by bit. This is a lesson we understood. Um, and Hayek talks a lot in the Constitutional Liberty, which I happened to uh, teach uh, this past semester, about once you get into the world of judging each little government action on its own, right, by its expediency, the government always wins, right? And so each of these says, oh, this is just a little bit of restriction. This is just a temporary restriction, right? Think about COVID vaccine mandates and how many libertarians appallingly supported um, COVID vaccine mandates, uh, for example, right? Oh, yeah, it's only been tested for a month, a month or two, right? We have no idea what the side effects are. We have no evidence that it's safe for people who have had, uh, uh, had COVID previously, all these sorts of things. But, you know, it's just a small thing, just one, right. one and done, right? Uh, you know, and then everybody will get it. Oh, it turns out you need a booster shot, right? Each incremental thing they can always justify, each incursion on liberty can can often be justified if you're just thinking in terms of these uh, this expediency. And so what Hayek says, of course, is the answer is basically not just no, the answer is hell no, 
right? Uh, the answer <laughs> is, I see where this goes, right? Uh, that you have to have a principal defense of liberty. And there's this wonderful expression of one of the other cla- things I taught this fall is a um, underappreciated speech by Edmund Burke, his speech on conciliation with the colonies, um, where he um, talks about you know, it's sort of the, the anomaly is why did Burke oppose the French Revolution and essentially support the American Revolution? It has a number of uh, factors, but one of the reasons he says it's always near and dear to my heart is he says, because America is a country of lawyers. <laughs> Everybody's reading law over there. Everybody's thinking about law. There's lawyers all over the place. He says, why are lawyers so so bad uh, for, for uh, you know, a colonial empire like England? He says, because lawyers see the evil of the principle uh, in the uh, in the immediate circumstance, right? Which is, he said, the problem with the Americans is that they saw that acquiescing in the tea tax wasn't just acquiescing in the tea tax to pay for the uh, uh, for, for for the war, right? It established right. a principle, uh, and the principle was no taxation without representation, right? Not now. Not temporarily, not ever, not on tea, right? Uh, and um, uh, and and that's what is necessary is for people to do this. And as you said, what happens is there's a little incursion, people get used to it. There's a little bit more. There's a little bit more. People get used to it. Sometimes they'll take three steps forward and one step back, but they never take three steps back on these uh, on these sorts of things. And uh, um, uh, and people need to be aware of this. And I think this constant, constant pushing and pushing wears people down and people just go along with it. And I think the way in which you say people complied with COVID, um, uh, COVID uh, restrictions um, grudgingly, but they did it because they just decided it wasn't worth the trouble uh, to do to do it otherwise. And, you know, the government counts on that. The government counts on being able to pluck people off uh, one after one, one at a time. Right. Uh, whether yeah. it's COVID, uh, DEI, forced speech, uh, you know, on, on campuses, um, basically every there's a collective action problem where every individual where no individual has the uh, courage to uh, um, to stand up and take it on themselves. And nobody has the energy to marshal sort of a collective uh, r- response to things. And so these things just grind away. Um, and uh, that's how liberty is lost. Yeah, yeah, couldn't agree more. Todd, this is a great overview of 2023. If you have the time, let's just take a, a few minutes to look forward, Janice-like, to 2024. What do you see on the horizon for liberty? Do you see hopeful things or do you see some threats that we should be alert to and, and prepared to face in the coming months? Yeah, I, I have to say, um, honestly, from my perspective, um, if I were to pick the biggest threat, um uh, th- this current administration, uh, the White House administration, this is, I think, hands down the most authoritarian peacetime uh, government administration we've had ever had in this country. If you look at the uh, COVID vaccine mandates, if you look at the coercion of social media, uh, if you look at the the the, uh, the the weaponization of the the criminal justice system against uh, political opponents, uh, if you Look at the the blatant lying about things. I mean, I one of the things that shocks me every day is that, you know, when he was running for president, Biden stood on the stage in a national debate and lied about Hunter Biden's laptop, and nobody in the media cares. Not a single member of the media seems to care that the now president 
brazenly and intentionally lied to the American people about an issue. Uh, um, how can I mean, how do these people live with themselves? Right. But yeah. when you look at the student loan ballots, the CDC uh, uh, things, the, uh, uh, you know, the CDC eviction moratorium, all these uses of executive power, the uh, uh, the covid vaccine mandates, the censorship, all this sort of stuff. I have a real fear that if uh, if reelected, this will be seen as a vindication uh, for the people, the architects uh, for those policies, uh, that it will be a sign of approval uh, that this is what is allowed uh, and that a substantial portion of the country uh, uh, supports this. And so I find that to be very, very troubling that um, the things that have been done, uh, a reelection, I think, would basically put a stamp of approval on that uh, from the um, from the uh, from from the people. That's that's the, the the biggest thing. I think the second thing that uh, bothers me is um, one of the great successes that we didn't talk much about was seemingly the rollback of uh, ESG and DEI. Um, these people seem to be running away from that. Um, yeah, my fear is we've seen things like this before. Uh, my fear is it just gets repackaged. Under a uh, under a different name, right? Just as uh, speech codes got repackaged as cancel culture on campuses, yeah. um, I fear that the DEI apparatus will figure out a way of co-opting uh, uh, this opposition um, and deflecting it so as to take the steam out of it. I think the um, I fear that the architects of ESG will um, rebrand it um, in some way. It continued to do the uh, to do the same sort of thing, and as you were saying, I think people might just get tired of um, uh, get tired of it, right? Right. Um, uh, but we do see uh, um, states acting on this, um, you know, to be able to um, to be able to do it. Um, the last thing is, um, you know, we do have this question about sort of the financial system that is uh, that is still lurking out there. Um, the Federal Reserve says they don't have power, for example, to do central bank digital currency. Um, I think it's naive to think now that just because the government says they don't have a power doesn't mean they wouldn't do it if they could get away with it, especially during an emergency. We know the yeah. Federal Reserve is uh, pilot programming a version of the CBDC uh, in, uh, in in New York, right? Um, I think that one of the things that needs to be done more is laws that affirmatively tell the government that they can't do something. Uh, rather than laws that you think they can't do it because you haven't expressly given them that power because um, sometimes courts will uphold it anyway. If they do, it may be years later, by which time it's a fait accompli. Right. Yeah. Well, we see this being discussed quite seriously in the EU and figures like Ursula von der Leyen and others have announced the intended rollout of CBDCs in, in the coming years. They've packaged it frequently together with um, various stated goals on UN platforms and UN declarations about you know, future coordination along certain values like Agenda 21 and Agenda 2030. Yeah. You know, it used to be I, I'm so old I can remember when, you know, citing those things was considered, you know, conspiracy theorizing. <laughs> right. But all one needs to do is direct the people who accuse you of that to the very websites of uh, that. <laughs> articulate these, <laughs> well, these it's intended funny. goals, and there they are. So much of the stuff, John, it's not like they're hiding it from us, right? right. It's like they're, it's, it's, you know, it's like they, they, they're, they're saying this is what we're doing. And for some reason, 
people, uh, I think by this time, when they say they're going to do something, they've established a pretty good record of credibility. I think we can believe <laughs> we can believe them rather than pretending like, oh, we'll give them you know the benefit of the doubt or something like that. It's not like they're asking for the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> they're telling us what they're doing and basically saying, you can't do anything about it, right? Um, the other yeah. thing that I find very disconcerting, um, you know, related to things just being repackaged is, I, you know, nobody who has been involved with the social media censorship stuff on COVID, on the elections or anything else, none of them have s admitted they were wrong on the facts or what they did or whatever, right? They have simply stuck to the line that they are engaged in dis, you know, they are suppressing disinformation and have never admitted what they were actually suppressing was true information, right? Right. I find that chilling, this kind of rampant gaslighting uh, that is going on now uh, where they just keep repeating the, uh, the same thing as if they were actually suppressing disinformation and misinformation rather than true uh, information. I find that very troubling because, um, because you know, that, I, th I think that's not gone. That's coming back. I think the idea that finding eccentric billionaires who are willing to lose billions of dollars to buy a social media platform. Call me crazy. That doesn't seem like a uh, plan A for uh, uh, preserving liberty, uh, <laughs> especially yeah. when people see the way in which joint boycotts and the way that, uh, frankly, the left has tried to ruin uh, uh, Twitter, ruin Elon Musk, basically inflict so much uh, uh, economic damage on him that nobody would ever try to do that again. Yeah, I find that to be a very uh, um, tenuous situation when they don't admit that they're wrong, where they are using all of the powers that they have in order to try to destroy Elon Musk uh, and what he's trying to do uh, to do at Twitter. Um, it's only because he's such a, uh, like I said, eccentric man, I think, that he's been willing to uh, to accept these sorts of losses. Most people wouldn't do it and most people wouldn't have the kind of wealth or power to be able to do uh, what he's he's doing there. And so um, I feel like a lot of these things have just gone underground. Uh, they've gone into hibernation. Like I said, just like we thought we beat back speech codes on campuses 20 years ago, but they just reemerged uh, as DEI and cancel culture and, you know, arbitrary application of discipline rules uh, and that sort of thing. Um, denouncements by, you know, uh, selective denouncements of certain speech, uh, um, allowing intimidation of certain speakers and not others, you know, all that sort of stuff. I fear that a lot of these things that look like uh, have been victories in 2023 could just be repackaged and come back somewhere down the road. Um, and, um, you know, eternal vigilance is the price of uh, the price of liberty, right? Um, one last thing I'll say is, you know, everybody was looking at the way in which parents pushed back in school boards, uh, right? Um, yes. We got some real victories there. You know, I, I, I call me a skeptic, but five years from now, when we come back, I suspect things won't be that much different. I mean, the the the, the left is into these institutions, uh, the unions, the activists, the politicians. They're there for the long haul. And those of us who believe in freedom tend to just get back to living our lives and get worn out uh, by by this stuff. Um, and so this is this is my concern is that it will get repackaged. We'll get worn out. We'll move on with our lives um, and they'll just kind of gear things up again and keep grinding forward the way that they that they have. Yeah. Yeah. No, a very serious concern. 
Brad Thompson at Clemson uh, has a substack in which he has been documenting the flight from public education right. and the, the growth of homeschooling and micro schools and other independent schooling options. So there's some hope there that people will just exit. Now, I would say the same perhaps about other things like ESG and, and uh, DEI, especially in, in the financial sector, that at some point one thinks, well, economic reality must eventually play some sort of limiting role here in reining in some of these these things, which clearly have no particular alignment with uh, shareholder um, profitability right. or profitability as a whole. So I guess one can just hope that there will be things in the real world which will check power and and roll back the state in some respects. Yeah, I th I th I, th I think we can we can hope for that, right? Uh, which is uh, that people still want economic growth uh, rather than a sort of zero sum economy, uh, which is divvying up a uh, divvying up a fixed pie. We've seen a lot of other countries go that direction, uh, and it took a lot Argentina a long time to change direction. After they uh, after they adopted um, that direction, but a more general point about homeschooling um, and the like is um, that we need to keep in mind. I think um, is that that wherever we see liberty, so do the enemies of liberty. So does the left in particular. So, for example, we saw in Canada um, after they shut down the bank accounts, everybody moved to to Bitcoin. And so what did they do? They went after freezing the Bitcoin wallets. Um, and then the people said, well, we don't know who owns these property, you know, these things. The government said, well, maybe you're right this time. Next time you will, because we'll just make it a regulatory crime for you not to know who has uh, the, uh, the, the, right. the, the Bitcoin uh, that you have. Um, in the United States, uh, there's a concerted effort by the left uh, to pull Bitcoin uh, and cryptocurrency into the the banking system, so they can get quote visibility into it, uh, so that we don't it can't be used for uh, for the for these bad things, right? And what and to your point then about homeschooling um, and and the like, which is if that become in my view is if that becomes too big of a threat to control by the uh, by the, by the left. Um, they will take actions uh, designed to make it more difficult to engage in that, to impose more burdens on it, uh, to, uh, to to you know tilt the playing field or use coercion um, in any way that they can. You know, take away, for example, the right of um, homeschool kids to be able to play local sports uh, or uh, or financial aid or whatever the case may be. Um, and that's what we need to be aware of: is whatever we see, they see also. As I said in a, an article in Reason Magazine back last spring, I said that to paraphrase Trotsky, um, you may not be interested in the culture war, but the culture war is interested in you. We can't just run away and hide. They're chasing us. They chase us down. Yes. Right? Silence right. is violence. Right? It's not enough to just have your own uh, quiet opinions. You must express the correct opinions. You must raise your fist. You must take a knee. It's not, uh, it's not appropriate to, to, to stay outside the fray, according to the left uh, today. And I fear that's where they're going to go, whether it's homeschooling, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, private employment, um, you know, all these all these sorts of things. They wherever we see liberty, so do they. Um, and they're riding fast to try to cut it off at the pass is what the world looks like to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the um, 
the cowboy reference is a perfect place to, uh, <laughs> to end eternal vigilance and cutting them off at the pass. Uh, <laughs> I think is, uh, a great, great set of themes to conclude on. Any, any last thoughts you wanted to share, Todd, before we sign off? Uh, no, other than that, uh, um, you know, I just think it's, it's a very tumultuous time. We haven't even talked about, I think, a lot of, of, you know, threats that we're, that we still don't fully understand. Um, I think that, uh, you know, there's, there's a growing sense, uh, from Jonathan Haidt and others of the way in which, uh, social media, um, for example, underlies um, a lot of the dynamics we're seeing in society. Emily Eakins, I encourage everybody uh, listening to this to follow Emily Eakins' research there at Cato. The work she's doing on, say, the psychological predicates of a free society, the internal versus external locus of control, um, and the way that interacts with personal responsibility, uh, the rule of law, democratic society, attitudes toward capitalism, and that sort of thing. Um, those are things we don't fully understand, that we don't understand the way that interacts, I think, with um, the character attributes of a, of a, of a free society. But um, I was recently at a conference uh, in, in London, uh, and this fellow, Oz Guinness, who I was previously unfamiliar with, said, right now, uh, Western civilization is a cut flower. We seem to be coasting on a lot of our inherited traditions of the rule of law, certain moral beliefs um, grounded in uh, Christianity, certain shared values like every person deserves equal dignity, which means every per person deserves equal dignity and right to worship as they want to worship, to speak their opinions, even if we think they're bad uh, or even socially destructive uh, opinions. All these fundamental values are, are, are under threat right now. All, the, all of the predicates of, uh, of, of a free society seem to be eroding at their base, and more and more people are turning towards politics and sort of short-term type things rather than sort of focusing on society, character, individual uh, values, and uh, uh, in, in the like. Um, and I don't have any solutions for that other than I think that's something that libertarians in general should be thinking about if we want to preserve the long-term free society. Yeah, yeah. Tremendously important points. Super. Well, this has been a fabulous retrospective on 2023 and, and some, uh, some thoughts for 2024 that will be very productive to pursue. So thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it, Todd. It's Thanks, been a great Jonathan. conversation. Have a great 2024. To liberty. <laughs> Eternal vigilance. <laughs> that's right. <laughs>